2: These guys who run these organizations who talk about analytics—they have one thing in common: they are a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game and they never got the girls in high school and they just want to get the game.
3: Welcome to Vicent's
0: Hardwood handicappers
2: As you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks,
4: the
0: funky outfit, and you say, "Now this guy's a chump." Am I right, now? F-ing now here's your host, Jonathan
5: Von Tobel. What up, folks? welcome in we got another edition of hardwood handicappers we are coming to an end of course of the show Uh, we might have one more hardwood handicappers next sunday or this might be the last episode of hardwood handicappers so take that as you will we got a good show on tap uh coming up at the very bottom of this hour tom burns sirius xm uh, mad dog sports radio and nba handicapper will be with us we'll see how he views what's going on in the nba finals as it has now been tied up at two games apiece matt humans is going to join us in the second hour got to watch game 4 with humans on Friday night so we'll see what his takeaways were if we you know saw the same thing watching the same screen and then of course our weekly hit with Daniel Alvari WNBA handicapper and host of the LA City Cast who will join us right at 4:45 p.m. Pacific time with that let's dive in and so before we look ahead to game 5 which will be tomorrow uh miss on the NBA's part to a certain extent not having the game tonight uh, I was a little, I thought it was going to be today. Uh, just, you know, it just kind of felt like it. We've had a lot of games on Sunday. But regardless, let's go back before we go forward. 107 to 97, your final score, as the Golden State Warriors and namely Steph Curry uh, tie up the series at two games apiece after a win in Boston. And that's where I wanted to start. And if you've been listening to the uh, podcast that we've been doing uh, after these games and looking ahead, and I've been putting these up after every single one of these finals games on the Harvard Handicappers podcast feed, I'm going to open this show in a very similar way in which I did that show, uh, which is there is no way that you can watch that game and not think that Steph Curry is one of the best basketball players of all time. And that's where I think you have to start here. This was a single-handed, we are not losing this game. I am one of the best players you've seen on a basketball court. We are going to win this, tie this up, take back home court, and we refuse to lose. And Curry was brilliant, 43 points. 14 to 26 shooting from the floor, seven of fourteen from three point range, had ten rebounds, four assists. His second half was even better because he scores twenty-four points, seven of eleven from the floor, five of six from three point range, and in the second half alone, Seth Curry, who was now the odds on favorite to an NBA Finals MVP, was a plus eighteen in the last two quarters of play of game four. And it like when you watched him, and I'm not one for narrative, right? Uh, I have sometimes uh, not logic, but like cold, hard data is the way that I view things. If you've watched enough of the show, you kind of realize that I've also admitted that it's very much a weakness of mine, right? When it comes to pooing certain spots in situations in the association and in other sports as well, when I'm handicapping it, but I, I, I tire of the narrative that Steph Curry has something left to prove. Steph Curry has nothing left to prove. Uh, he is one of the best basketball players that has ever taken the court in the NBA. I'm also not one for ranking these guys. I was asked like, where do you rank them among the top? I don't care. He's one of the best players of all time, bar none. I don't think there's really any question about it. His style of play has changed the way the NBA game is played today. He's one of the best shooters we have ever seen. No, he is the best shooter we've ever seen. He's just one of the best basketball players of all time. And he's got that championship DNA, that medal. But I just thought you needed to start there. And we have ESPN stats and info. Uh, This is from Friday night. Again, we're talking about history being made. Curry just doing it over and over again. Steph Curry with the forty-three points, ten rebounds in that Game Four win at age thirty-four years and eighty-eight days, the second oldest player in NBA Finals history to record a forty and ten game behind only LeBron James in twenty twenty. He was thirty-five years and two hundred and eighty-four days old uh, when that occurred. Curry's brilliant man. He's absolutely brilliant. His twenty-three and a half field goal attempts per game, the most he's averaged in a series since two thousand nineteen. He has scored thirty-two point six percent of the Warriors' total points scored in this series. Don't think there's really any dispute from there. So with that, moving forward, as we kind of start the show today, I wanted to break down Friday from two different perspectives. First off, the Warriors' perspective, because they, were, they went out there and they won that game. And then the second perspective is, of course, the Celtics' perspective and how they move forward in adjusting from what happened in that contest. So first off, let's start what I think is the main takeaway here, which is Steve Kerr clearly tinkering and throwing, I think, everything at the wall to see what sticks. He started the game, if you remember, the opening lineup, Curry, Thompson, Wiggins, Green, and Porter, but that lineup was that scored by about seven points uh, in the first few minutes, and I think clearly when you saw Curry, start, excuse me, Kerr, start that game, he, he wanted to stick with Draymond, and, and adding Otto Porter Jr. to the starting lineup in game four was clearly a sign that I want to keep Draymond out there, but I need some sort of offensive outlet. I can't put Kamon Looney out there as well because my offense gets heavily slanted to one side of the floor in terms of Boston just not really respecting two of the options out of the five on that end, and it didn't really work. So what happens? You go to Looney and play supporter immediately. That was about the 7.22 mark of the first quarter, and from there on out, Looney finishes his time on the floor in the first quarter. They outscore the Celtics by five points for the rest of the fourth, and that would kind of be the theme as you get a bit later in the show. If you fast forward to the fourth quarter of game four on Friday, and this is where it really starts to show. Celtics lead 90-86. to Kerr takes Draymond and Bielitsa off of the floor in that uh, fourth quarter. He rolls with the lineup of Curry, Poole, Thompson, Wiggins, Looney. And Golden State outscores Boston by seven points over the next four minutes to take a 97-94 lead without Draymond Green on the floor. You saw that big shift. And then, this is the best part about what Kerr did, and this is also... You know, we take these shots all the time, right? When we're talking about narratives and everything. And the the two years prior, everybody, ah, the Warriors, look, at they stink. No Kevin Durant. Kerr has no idea what he's doing. He's just been the benefit of having great players. Kerr has really shown his chops throughout this postseason. And in this series, Kerr then goes offense-defense down the stretch, replacing Green for defensive possessions with Poole for offensive possessions, going back and forth. And it was brilliant. And the Warriors who were minus 40 in the previous three games in the fourth quarter, win the fourth quarter 28-19, to 19, and they win the game. So let's hear from Draymond first, because this is a pretty big blow to a guy who has been a key part of a championship squad, and he gave voice to it after the game on Friday night saying, like, yeah, man, I'm never thrilled to come out of a tight game.
2: Definitely never thrilled coming out of the game with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter in a must-win game. I'm not going to sit here and act like uh, <laughs> you know, I was thrilled. Um, I'm a competitor, but um at the end of the day if that's what coach decides then you roll with it and you know I had to keep my head in the game and you know whenever I went back in try to make some plays and so uh, that was just my mindset you know don't make too much of it uh, I've always I've always been of the um on the bandwagon of you know if you got something in this rolling you you stick with it
5: and it's going to be fascinating to see what happens as we move forward in the series and what Kerr wants to do. But I think it was also necessary that you made this move. I mean, look at some of the numbers behind this, especially on the offensive end of the floor. Draymond has had absolutely nothing. We know that he's averaged four points per game in this series. He's shooting 30.7% from the floor, or as total, in this entire series – he is 6 of 26 in terms of his field goal attempts. And when you watch, Boston's got no respect for him on the offensive end. They consistently help off of him. They can rotate back with relative ease. There was a great sequence where there's a pick and roll with Draymond Green. Green rolls to the basket, and you see that Al Horford, and this is from game four, he, he goes and he does the whole thing where he's dropping off ever so slightly, helps a little bit more. To I think it was, I think it was Poole who ran the pick and roll, but he easily – Easily scrams back to find Draymond Green, contest a shot within four feet of the basket, and of course, he misses the shot. Now, Draymond is not all negative. He does still have his value as a passer. In fact, in this last game, he had eight assists. Uh, He was really good when he got his time on the floor in the fourth quarter in terms of impacting Golden State defensively, too. But if you're talking about the shifting role now for Draymond and juxtaposing it with how they're going to start to use Kevon Looney, I'm really interested to see how Kerr uses this going forward. And let's hear from Steve Kerr because, and this is why he gets credit for things, right? This is what I like in, in a professional sense. You never know everything. And sometimes you like to admit when you're wrong. And Kerr, after the game, even spoke to it, said, yeah, Looney's important, and I didn't even play him enough in game three. Right.
6: Yeah, Loon is uh, is just crucial to everything we do. He's our best screener, um, our best rebounder, uh, one of our smartest players. He's always in the right spot. You know, he made, I thought, the biggest bucket of the game when um, after um, Horford made the three from the corner. Draymond made the the pass out of the pocket to Loon. He finished with that left hand. Uh, So Loon has just grown uh, leaps and bounds. You know, this year, he's been really good for us over the years. Um, but this year in particular, he's, he's taken a leap um, to a point where, you know, he's, uh, mm. he's just, uh, you know, irreplaceable for us. Um, and he's uh, played in every game, and he's a, a guy we count on. I didn't play him enough in game three. You know, that was my mistake. Um, so it was important to get him out there, and he had a huge impact on the game.
5: Looney had a Warriors best in terms of plus minus in that game four win uh, for the Warriors. Yes, even better uh, than um, Steph Curry. But I, I think that Kerr brings up the most important part about Looney's ability early part of that clip, which is rebounding. If you go back to game three, remember the Warriors got absolutely crushed in that game three loss on the boards. I got a rebounded; They got a rebound of 47 to 31. The Celtics had 15 offensive rebounds in that game. You go to Game 4 on Friday, Looney on the floor taking a whole bunch of uh, minutes on the floor. Looney 11 rebounds, 4 offensive. He and Wiggins combined for 27, and they had 55 rebounds as a whole, the Golden State Warriors. It was a really big adjustment, and it's an adjustment that paid dividends for Steve Kerr. So what does it mean as we head into Game 5 on Friday? Well, I think it means a lot. I think it obviously means that more minutes for Looney, of course, are in order, and we'll talk about how that affects the player prop market as we uh, get into that in the next hour And he's deserving of it. But I also wonder what it means for Draymond in terms of his minutes. Looney's minutes went up. Draymond's minutes went down. If you look at the starting core, at least that was out there on the floor, out of Porter Jr., we won't include him, but at least of the core group that they have out there on the floor, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins all played over 40 minutes. Draymond only played 33. And we talked about what happened in the fourth with some of the rotations. And you wonder, like, as you talk about this, who's in the starting lineup on on Monday night when we talk about the Warriors as a a three-and-a-half-point favorite with a total of 212 in Game 5 back in San Francisco, do you still roll out there with Otto Porter Jr.? Do you dare say that Draymond Green uh, plays under 30 minutes in this game against the Boston Celtics? If if that's what it takes to win, will Steve Kerr do that? He's already shown that he's willing to come back off of that. And on the flip side, because we're going to get to Boston on the other side of this, with Ime Udoka and the way that he has kind of staggered Robert Williams and Al Horford in terms of their minutes as this series has gone along, do we now see – that these two bigs will play together a little bit more often. On Friday, they were plus six when both Horford and Williams were on the floor together, but they didn't play together on the floor after the 746 mark of the third quarter. So there's so many different things that come out of these uh, adjustments and wrinkles. So on the other side, let's talk a little bit more about the Celtics side of things. Can they win this series still, no longer having home court, and continuing to struggle in an area that they have struggled all year long That would be crunch time. We'll talk about that. We'll dive into those numbers and much more. And remember, bottom of this hour, Tom Burns, Sirius is going to join us. Don't go anywhere. Hardwood handicap.
0: 18 plus
5: welcome to be hardwood handicappers now here's your host jonathan von tobel what's up folks all right so we're kind of taking a deep dive in here uh, on what happened in game four and how we're going to spin these forward in terms of this series and uh, i'm really excited like this has been I, i think it's been an awesome nba finals up to this point Regardless of what happens in terms of a final result, we got the series that I think a lot of us wanted once we started to see that the conference finals were going to get set. And uh, I think it has paid off. These games have been pretty good outside of the blowout in game two. Uh, These have been games that have been worth paying attention to. The adjustments have been a lot of fun. Really good performances on both sides. So we talked a lot about the Warriors' perspective and about the adjustment, the adjustment to go big, and Kevon Looney getting a little bit of a bigger role here um, for the Golden State Warriors. So let's talk about Boston. Because I think the first question you ask after watching game four is, what the hell, I was about to say something else, happened? you a little comfortable. You know what I mean? Went out partying last night, a little too comfortable with that. Uh, but what in the world happened in Boston's offense in the second half? Going through some of the numbers, Celtics offensive rating 95.6 in the second half of that loss to the Golden State Warriors on Friday. 86.4 was their offensive rating in the fourth quarter. For those who don't know off the top of their head in terms of the scale of offensive ratings, I will tell you that 86.4 is absolute trash. Um, so, it's not very good. If you want the more traditional metrics, they went 7 of 21 from the floor in the fourth quarter, the Celtics did, 4 of 13 from beyond the arc. And the offense just kind of devolved into this weird stagnant mess. Isolation possessions, little effort to get the ball moving. Uh, Marcus Smart, uh, you know, the meme, or every, every time the joke comes up on social media, like, yeah, it's Marcus Smart time or whatever. It was Marcus Smart time, apparently, at times in the fourth quarter. And in fact, stagnant was actually the word that Tatum used. To describe the offense in the final quarter. So Let's hear from Jason Tatum on what exactly went wrong with their offense in the fourth quarter.
2: It's tough. I mean, you got to give them credit; they played well. You know, they hit some big shots, um, things like that. Uh, you know, we obviously felt like we had our, put ourselves in a position to win the game, and you know, it's a lot of things that we wish we'd have done differently. Uh, you know, especially on the offensive end, I think we just got way too stagnant. Played in the fourth uh, from everybody.
5: And, and this is kind of what happens with Boston, right? I mean, this is, this is why when you watch them fail to execute in the fourth quarter, at least for me, I think this is why you come away from a lot of these Celtics games thinking more, man, Boston really shot themselves in the foot as opposed to, man, Team X really forced Boston into some of these poor looks. When you, when you have a play in which Marcus Smart has the ball at the top of the key and they run off 14 seconds of the shot clock just doing this, right, like pointing and trying to get guys like, hey, come over here. No, center's screen over here. And then it just evolves into, uh, you know what, kick it to Tatum. Let's see what he can do with it. And it just ends with Tatum trying to shoot over a defender. Sometimes those shots go in. A lot of the times they don't, though. And I think that's kind of what irritates you. And, and Al Horford kind of put this pretty well, I thought, especially at the back end of what you're going to hear from this clip of Horford, where he says, like, we just took possessions for granted. Um,
2: yeah, I felt like we take we took possessions for granted. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like, um, you know, we executed as well as we did the previous game. Um, and... Uh, um, you know, you, the, this is, uh, you know, we really can't do that. So um, definitely need to um, be better there down the stretch. Um, just a little more locked in as a group.
5: And as you kind of go forward in that clip too, it's weird because, well, it's not even weird. He's followed up with the question, essentially, of, like, why does this keep happening? And he laughs, and he's like, ah, you know, this is, this is what we've been doing. We put our backs up against the wall, and, you know, this is the Celtics. And he's right. This is what the Celtics do, but it's also not really hilarious when you think about the situations that a talented team continues to put themselves in. It's the problem with this team, and it's one of the things that I mentioned. As somebody who had picked the Celtics, all of those things, are where I'm invested at, one of the things that you knew that if, they were gonna, if they're going to lose this series that was going to kill them was their performance in clutch minutes. And if you've watched the show, I've brought this up before about Boston, a refresher, though, is that this team has not been very good in clutch minutes. One more time, for those who don't know, clutch minutes, again, game within five points on either either side with five or fewer minutes left to go. So far in the postseason, the Celtics have played 12 games in which there have been clutch minutes. And, yes, the team is seven and five straight up in those 12 games. However, they have a negative 14.2 net rating in those games. So yes, they've won seven of the 12, but they've been terrible and actually won um, pretty much against themselves, right? in terms of winning games that went to clutch minutes. And again, this extends back to the regular season. In the regular season, the Celtics, 26th in clutch net rating, they are outscored by 19 or excuse me, 9.5 points per 100 possessions in clutch minutes in the regular season. They went 13 and 22 straight up in the games that entered clutch minutes in the NBA regular season. And in five, just five, so it's a really small sample size. But in just five clutch minutes in this series, the majority of which happened on Friday, against Golden State, they have an offensive rating of, get this, 42.9. They didn't score a single point in the clutch minutes that were played on Friday. They went 0-6 from the floor. Meanwhile, the Warriors, 5-8, of 2-3 of three from three-point range, three assists, seven rebounds. They completely outplayed the Boston Celtics in those clutch minutes, and it speaks to having a creator and a player like Curry on the floor. And it's also what this team is. We've heard about all these numbers for Boston, and we remember the positive ones. Right? On Monday, if they win, they can improve to 8-0 straight up and 8-0 against the spread coming off of a loss. But how about some of these other numbers for Boston? After a straight-up win in the postseason, uh, I've got them down as 6-8 straight up, 6-7-1 against the spread. It's a cover rate of 42.9%. If you include the regular season as well, we're talking about a 38-27 straight-up record. Fine. 9 games above 500, or excuse me, 11 games above 500, uh, but 31 and 30 and 4. So 31 wins or 31 covers, 39 covers, 4 pushes against the spread. That's a 50.8% mark. So, again, you're down if you're talking about that from that perspective. And they just consistently do this. And I thought Tatum had a pretty good answer to a certain extent. It was kind of funny, but they asked him, like, essentially, why do you guys keep, keep putting yourself in this position?
2: I mean, we don't do this shit on purpose. I promise you we don't. Um, you know, we, we trying as hard as we can, but we do, like, there's certain things that we got to clean up, obviously, turnovers, uh, movement on the offensive end. Um, you know, what we have liked to win today and be a 3-1? That would have been the best-case scenario, but um, it's the finals. And, you know, in the art of competition, you know, they came here with, you know, no feeling like they had to win. I mean, you know. It wasn't easy. And I think that's, um, that's kind of the beauty of it. That is, is, it is not going to be easy and it shouldn't be. Um, you know, we both want it and, you know, we got to go take it.
5: So I mentioned, and he kind of laughed it off there. Horford kind of laughed it off in the answer that I was talking about, immediate availability after the game. And I guess there is, you're allowed to have a certain confidence if you're the Celtics when you look at some of the numbers and you realize that this is a team that, again, undefeated in the postseason, coming off of the straight-up loss, as we know. 27-11, straight up. 26-12 ATS this season as a whole, uh, coming off of a straight-up loss. So again, they have covered 68.4% of their games after they lose a game. So I guess there is built up a certain confidence after you consistently do this, right? Put yourself in a bad position, but then dig yourself out of it. You did it against the Milwaukee Bucks where you're down 3-2. You went, Yeah, when you're down 3-2, you win two straight, you win that series. You do it when you're taking on the Miami Heat. You're up 3-2, you lose at home, you win a game seven over in Miami. So when you consistently you know, deliver in these situations, I guess there's a reason why this team seems pretty lax, not lax, because that's not really fair to them because that paints a picture of a team that doesn't really care. But there's a confidence in this situation where now you have to go on the road and at least to win at least one more road game. Again, a situation in which they have been very good. They have played very well away from home in the postseason and again in the season as a whole. 31 and 21 straight up, 33 17 and 2 against the spread. That's a 66% cover rate away from home if you include regular and postseason for the Celtics. But at the same time, right, you can't keep playing with fire. And every time you don't get burned, like, man, I'm great at this. Eventually, right, you're going to get burned to use the cliche in its entirety. So it brings us to Monday night and it brings us to game five. Celtics catching three and a half, total of two, 12 and a half, Uh, And we'll have more on the total and from that perspective too because I I do feel like this series is starting to take shape in terms of the way that these totals are going to be played. But all of this, as we have kind of recapped game four to a really good extent, what does this mean as we spin this forward? And I think you start with where we began, which is size. Size is the first thing that I think you come to this matchup with. We've established that Looney is necessary for the Golden State Warriors to be successful. Does Kerr start him on Monday? Does he? Does he – what does he do with Draymond? Do I dare suggest – that he doesn't start Draymond Green, right? Like, if you're talking about putting Looney out there and wanting to get off to your best start, Looney has been one of your best players in this series. Do you try that? Do you not desperate, but do you tinker that much if you're Steve Kerr? So, what does that look like? And with Looney on the floor, how do those uh, how do those lineups look? You, I can't, I don't think you start with the same lineup as in Game Four because that one got outscored by seven points. Outer Porter Jr. played less than twenty minutes, and it wasn't really that successful. And if that's the case, if you're looking at this from the Celtics standpoint. Do we see more of these dual lineups with Al Horford and Robert Williams? Also, speaking of Williams, is even he healthy? If you guys remember, and this is, I had to go back and I was watching, and you realize this, that with the 341 mark left in the fourth quarter, Robert Williams hobbled off the floor, and he wasn't playing for the rest of that quarter because he wasn't fully healthy. And Ima Yudoka, again today in availability, uh, said that it wasn't really anything specific that tweaked Williams' knee and that he should be fine and that he's going to be available for Game 5. He'll test it as normal. But Williams has been incredible in these last two games. 15 points, 22 rebounds, 6 blocks, a combined plus 27 in those two games. So I'm going to have more on this situationally in those road numbers for the Celtics, but those are kind of like the two main points as you start here, and we haven't talked about Boston defensively, which has still showing some real consistency even in these losses, specifically in one area of the floor that we'll talk about. Uh, When we come back, we'll build more on that. We'll also touch on the NBA draft because DraftKings are starting to add more and more props to their market, and there's some interesting props that are up there that we can attack as the NBA draft is right around the corner. slash store Welcome to Beeson's Hardwood Handicappers Now here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel The Major League Baseball season is in full swing and you can play ball with the Peacock Major League Baseball Sunday leadoff challenge Just draft your players and compete for free up to $10,000 in prizes Visit DraftKings.com slash Peacock for more info Don't just watch your shows Peacock them Terms and conditions and other eligibility restrictions apply See DraftKings.com more detail. All right. I um, wanted to kind of put a bow on what we were talking about with uh, game five, as uh, we will get back to, of course, all of the analysis for the NBA finals. Um, so I mentioned kind of going into the break, Boston defensively, and I think it's still very much worth pointing out as we move back to San Francisco. So how you put this, like the Celtics have still been, actually it's the easy way to put it. The Celtics have still been borderline elite when it comes to their defense. And I know a lot of people are going to look at Steph Curry dropping 40 points and going, "No, okay, clown, wrong." And it, but it's very true to like if you look at this again statistically. Let, let's look back on Friday night again one more time, right? The offensive numbers for Golden State outside of just Steph Curry's 42 points were actually pretty mundane from an offensive rating standpoint. 112.6 and non-garbage time minutes. Again, about an average to below average offensive uh, rating in a single game. If you look at it from a half-court perspective, very. Very below average for the Golden State Warriors. In fact, both teams were awful. 83.9 for the Golden State Warriors, 84.3 for the Boston Celtics. The Celtics have actually, in this series, in half-court settings, limited the Golden State Warriors to 93.5 points per 100 plays. That's a really good defensive rating in the half-court to hold an opponent, to. And Golden State has gotten their uh, their points and their efficient points really in one area of the floor. Technically, it's two, but it's one. It's transition. It's... Right, First action, right when you get the ball over the court. It's a screen for Curry, steps into that space that's provided by that drop coverage, puts up a three and hits it, or it's turnovers that you know, steals, then lead to transition opportunities the other way, and the Warriors, again, score. So like that, when you look at it from the perspective of how the Warriors are getting their points, that is how they have really won these two games when you look at it. The Celtics, again, when you talk about the, looking at this from the perspective of shooting themselves in the foot, It's about limiting turnovers, limiting transition opportunities, because in these half-court settings, the Warriors still have not put forth a a consistent effort over the course of these four games. And I think if you're the Celtics, that's what you're really putting your hat, you're leaning on, you're hanging your hat on, whatever cliche you want to use there. We have still, for the course of this series, been a pretty consistent defensive team. We have limited the other opportunities for the players, not named Steph Curry. We have been very good in half-court settings. And it's all about... Maybe tweaking some things here and there when it comes to the coverage of Steph Curry and just limiting the opportunities we give them. 19 points off of turnovers for the Golden State Warriors in a game in which they lost by 10 on Friday night. Those are opportunities that you give up to the opponent. And if you're the Celtics, I think that's how you're kind of approaching this and feeling as you move forward in the series and as you move forward on the road in this series. Also, the last point here, the other thing that is going to um, get a lot of uh, traction – when it comes to analysis of the series. You can hear a lot about, again, the 7-0 mark after a straight-up win and loss, and that'll be the qualification for a lot of the handicap uh, for quite a lot of people. I brought up to you the fact that this is a Celtics team that has played very well on the road, again, covering about 66%, 67% of their games away from home. To give you numbers, how they have operated away from home in the postseason, too, the Celtics, plus 5.1 net rating, league leading eight wins. They're 8-3 straight up, 9-2 and two against the spread, or you know 8-3-1, and one, depending on how you get your numbers averaging 113.5 points per 100 possessions in non-garbage time minutes away from home in this postseason. But the most important mark, 108.4 points per 100 possessions in non-garbage time minutes allowed. It's been a team that has responded. So, And it goes back to what we were talking about, the weird kind of nonchalant, like, <laughs> like we're going to be fine. We put ourselves in this position all the time. Maybe, and maybe they get out of this series consistently putting themselves in this position. Um, but we'll see if that's the case. But this has been a team that's responded in these spots You just can't keep putting yourself in those spots because it's not the best position to be in. All right, anyway, with that, we'll get back to that coming up in about 10 minutes from now when Tom Byrne joins us. Uh, Let's talk about some other stuff in the NBA because there's other stuff going on, specifically the NBA draft, which is right around the corner. And as the days go along, uh, uh, markets and operators like DraftKings are starting to put some more stuff up for betters to – play around with. So wanted to start with some player draft position stuff, uh, talk a little bit more about you know first overall pick. There's nothing really evolving there. Uh, it is worth noting that the first overall selection in terms of the odds, they continue to grow in favor of Jabari Smith. He's now minus 330 to be the first overall pick, and these are up at vsan.com. You can check the odds there. Uh, that's the drafting price as well. And it is this is the thing. I was talking about this with Jim Root on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Jim Root, who does a lot of work, of course, three-man weave, Phil uh, the sixty eight. When you talk about why this price has gotten so high, there was a report by Jonathan Gavoni that stated it is uh, believed in the league, widely, that the Orlando Magic are going to go with Jabari Smith for the first overall selection. Keep in mind, the wording of that report is that executives in the league believe it to be the case. There is nothing that is being reported from inside the Orlando Magic that that is the case. And I would say... That as these odds continue to grow on Chet Holmgren, who is widely considered to be the most talented player in this draft, at plus three hundred. If we're talking plus three fifty, I would Chet Holmgren and taking him and at an inflated plus price is definitely worth it. When you're talking about the implied probability and the difference between those, it's hard to see that Jabari Smith Jr., who's going to be a really good player and maybe an elite three and D wing type of guy, is selected first over Orlando or by Orlando. And I get it. Holmgren and Wendell Carter Jr. and how they fit together and all those dynamics are a play. But at the same time, just from a price perspective, to see the guy who is widely considered to be the most talented prospect in this draft be over $3 to be the first overall selection, uh, position aside, uh, damn position value, right? It's all about just taking the most talented player at this point of the NBA draft, and that's still Chet Holmgren. All right, the other stuff that has been added to the board, though, uh, we now have player draft position props that are available in a couple of spots, and it's very much worth looking at. And uh, there's a couple that I wanted to point out uh, because there's some really intriguing numbers around a few of these guys and where they might end up. So let's start with A.J. Griffin coming out of Duke. Player position props at a 10.5, heavily shaded to the under at minus 165. Griffin's consensus spot, if you look at all the major mock drafts that are available, seems to be about eighth overall. And Hoops Hype, it's, really, it's very much a tool worth using. Hoops Hype, uh, the website, uh, actually has done this. They're, they have a draft uh, article up, and I'll tweet it out a little bit later for those who are interested, uh, that has aggregated all of the main mock drafts and has given you an average position for some of these guys. So it does take a little bit of the work off of your shoulders. Uh, but if you look at this, according to some of these mocks, highest point in the draft, or I guess lowest, if you, however you phrase it, uh, 12th overall for a guy like Griffin. Fifth is the highest draft pick, and you see the draft order right there with the Pistons. Worked out with Portland the other day. It was about two days ago. Widely considered to be a lottery pick by scouts around the league, so safely within this top 14 as we look at it. But when you kind of break it down, how likely is it that he goes in the top 10 selections? Because if you look at minus 165, and an implied probability of 62.3%, it doesn't seem – it seems like a little high in that regard. So, for example, if you go under, the Kings do not seem likely – to take him. Uh, they seem very much tied to Jaden Ivey, which might be the case, or, or not even Ivey, uh, excuse me, um, Keegan Murray. So, outside of that, you're talking about fifth Detroit, sixth Indiana, seventh Portland. Uh, rumors that the Kings and the Portland Trailblazers are floating their pick because they want to get out and they want to acquire and establish talent to help their teams, for whatever reason, uh, make a push toward the postseason, much like the Pelicans did. So, overall, when you're looking at this, might be good fits for Indiana, New Orleans, and Washington, but I think you'd rather lay like minus 135 on him to go inside the top 10 A.J. Griffin as opposed to a minus 165 because uh, 135 is more like 57% in terms of implied probability. Seems like a much fairer price for a guy like Griffin and where he's been ending up in some of these mock traps. So lean to the over on him just given the fact that it's a higher plus price than it probably should be at this point right now, but nothing definitive. The other guy, and so I started this a couple of weeks ago where it was judging where you might get a guy in terms of draft position and looking to play under him. One of those guys was Benedict Matherman, who's coming out of uh, Arizona. Love the kid. Looks fantastic. Six foot six. Got a super high release on the jump shot. Is uber athletic. He can be one of those really, if he shores up his defensive talent, could be a really, really strong player for somebody to grab in the middle of the lottery. And I was thinking like, man, if you're him at like 10.5, like A.J. Griffin, I'll be looking to bet that under, and even at a, a price you know, that you're laying in the range of like $2 or so, he seems like he's going to be safely inside of the top 10. I'm well, not the only one. Obviously, that's paying attention. Benedict Matherin's draft position prop opens up at 8.5, shaded to the under at this price at minus 180. Consensus draft position for him has been about 7th, and this is, I think, kind of one of the tighter draft positions that you're going to see on the board, because I was hoping to get him at the 10.5 mark, and if you look at some of the news behind him, he worked out for Indiana on Friday. Uh, that is this is from the Indy Star. Quote, highest-ranked known prospect Indiana has brought in, according to that uh, publication. He'd be a beautiful fit for the Pacers. But if you look at it, too, when you're talking about where he could likely go, if you're talking about 8.5, shaded to the under at minus 180, it seems pretty high for a guy that's been mocked at 10th to Washington quite a bit as well. I was willing to lay that price. But when you're talking about 8.5 and, and really your margin of error is 6, 7, or 8, Uh, To say that he's safely inside those top three picks at a minus 180 price, it's a little too rich for my blood. So if it continues to drift, actually, the under uh, might be something, or excuse me, the over uh, might be something worth looking at there for a guy like Benedict Matherin. And we're going to get to more of these. There's really intriguing prospects. Dyson Daniels has been really, it sounds like, skyrocketing up boards. The G League Unite kid. Jalen Duran, who at one point seemed like a lock within the top ten, but recent news about how a team that seems like a fit for him in Portland uh, is I think changed that a little bit, and uh, the star that everybody knows at this point, Johnny Davis, is it what 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 is he eating in the Taco Bell commercials? Is it like a chalupa or something like that. Uh, he's got a draft position. Pro- How good is your agent? The dude is like a fringe top ten pick, and he's in every single Taco Bell commercial that's playing during the NBA Finals. We'll talk about him, Shaden Sharp, and others. Uh, maybe a little bit more in the second hour. But on the other side, Tom Burns, SiriusXM, Mad Dog Sports Radio is going to join us. Fantastic NBA handicapper. Get his thoughts on Game Five.
4: Zumo Play.
3: Presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
4: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or
0: download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
5: Welcome to v Hardwood Handicappers. Now here's your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. All right, before you uh, hit... Any button on your app, make sure you visit v Check out the current betting splits data. That's right. We have all the information up there. You want to find out where the public is betting based on the number of tickets and where the money doesn't match the public opinion, check out not just today's action but future events as well. Betting splits another way. v is here to make you smarter, better year-round. Check out today's betting splits for every game at v All right, let's welcome in. Tired of hearing my voice for a while? Well, good. This guy's got some pipes on him. Tom Burden host, Series 6M, Mad Dog, Sports Radio, NBA Handicapper, and now WNBA Handicapper. We dabble in WNBA talk here on the show. Tom, what do you got for us?
7: Yeah, I heard you had Danielle on. I might need a couple pointers. No, I went with the Wings plus four. They lost by five, so that's always fun. It's good to get that feeling back. And then the Liberty, they took it home pretty easily. Plus, I think I took plus seven or seven and a half, and they lost by two. They were winning the entire game. You know, it's funny when the NBA Finals start to hit, I get that feeling like i need a little bit more so i said why not i'm gonna create a wmba model found some sites took some time i don't think the wife was too thrilled what are you doing oh i'm uh you know wmba modeling is not gonna be a good excuse but why not there's worse things in the world to do jvt that's
5: right uh now now i was gonna make a joke something about like women's basketball and modeling and would your wife really be okay with that but uh, uh let's uh, it would be a corny joke anyway all right so let's focus yeah, on Yeah, <laughs>
1: uh,
5: <laughs> All right, so let's talk about this, though. So uh, we always remember what we saw last, and on Friday night after, the, uh, goal, after Steph Curry just puts on an incredible performance, arguably his best playoff performance of all time, um, and he ties the Boston Celtics. I say he, not the Warriors. He ties the Celtics in this Series 2-2. I got a lot of, <laughs> yeah. they're dead. Told you, Celtics, it's over. You're done. And I'm like, eh, really, is that the case? So where are you at now? We are through two games here. And, and I kind of just feel, Tom, the same way that I have felt almost after every single Celtics loss, which is they make mistakes and shoot themselves in the foot. I still have confidence that they'll be able to respond in a really big way. But I'm also tired of having confidence yeah. that they will respond in a really big way and putting themselves in these positions.
7: Yeah, I'm with you. Listen, I had them in six going in. I'm on Celtics in the series. I've been on them. The last two nights as well, obviously, I split. They're the better team, but not by a long shot because Steph Curry's the best player on the floor. Steph Curry's been unbelievable. I mean, I never bought this narrative. You and I discussed this. I forget whose show it was, but we discussed this before the series. The idea that Steph Curry had pressure on him that could somehow hurt his legacy was insane. All he could do is enhance his legacy. I mean, he's a great player. Clay Thompson's no longer the player he once was, though, right? Draymond Green, oh, my God, I'm sure we'll get to that. He's been awful for the most part. And so Steph has carried more weight than people know. Sure, they got fortunate not having to play Phoenix, but we've seen that in the past. I mean, every team gets lucky to an extent. Heck, Boston didn't have to go up against Chris Middleton. And so Golden State, if we're honest, probably has no business being in this position. A lot of nights they're going with Jordan Poole, the secondary scorer. Dude was in the G League not that long ago. What Steph Curry's doing is phenomenal. Listen, I don't hate my position. I'm not going to play the game. If I did, I'd say Boston it would be the side, I think, with value, according to my numbers anyway. Uh, but right now, you got to think with two or three in San Francisco, this series is probably a coin flip. So, therefore, the value isn't taking the plus money with Boston. But the series itself is probably a coin flip. But one thing, DBT, forget about home court advantage meeting four and a half to five points, depending upon pace. because a lot of guys have noticed that home court, and it was like this last year, has meant an awful lot in the postseason. I don't know how much it means in this particular series. Boston, for whatever reason, seems to be more comfortable on the road. And even Golden State, now they've only lost that one game at home, but that was to Boston. I don't know that you're handicapping in looking at home court meaning too much in this series.
5: Yep, it's a fair point. So let's focus on Curry for a second. And one of the narratives conversations that has come out of these last few games has been... Yudoka's got to stop dropping on him. Horford's got to stop dropping on Curry. And I kind of see both sides of this, Tom. Where do you stand? Because I see the fact that drop coverage eliminates those three-on-four situations that the Warriors love so much, right? Like, if you're going to send two guys at Curry, right. well, the ball starts ping-ponging around. It's where Draymond Green it looks his best in terms of the offense. At the same time, I think you can tweak it a little bit. Like, but, like, there's certain plays. Like, he hit, like, a sidestep three against Horford, who actually played him pretty tight on a couple of drops and he just drains them. What what have you thought about their defensive approach? Because I think at the end of the day when you look at some of the numbers, I think they're actually doing the right thing.
7: I actually do not like the drop coverage at all, though. I hear what you're saying. like I understand there's an argument to be made, uh, but generally speaking, I I am not a drop coverage guy, especially against Steph Curry. I'd make those other guys beat me. If they get an advantage, all right, I'll live with a Draymond Green five-foot runner, to be honest with you. I'd take that over a sidestep, 35-foot, three-point shot from Steph Curry at this point. So you know, I get where you're coming from. And in, Ma a I trust. I mean, this guy is a phenomenal defensive coach. There's no question. I mean, bottom line is he should have been the coach of Philadelphia. They should have rid of Doc Rivers kept him. I mean, this guy's been phenomenal learned under Greg Popovich for a long time. So I tend to trust him. I don't personally love the drop coverage stuff. I love seeing Marcus smart fight through that screen. Uh, I love seeing that sort of energy from smart. He's been a linchpin. Robert Williams. We know how good he is defensively. They're a pleasure to watch on that end.
5: So, Last note, note on Curry before we get to more of the Celtics aspect of this. As he entered yeah. Jerry West territory, it, it, can he win this finals MVP even if they lose the series?
7: No, because humans vote for the award, and they've proven that already by giving Andre Iguodala the award <laughs> over LeBron. I know I harp on this too much, but again, anybody who voted for Andre Iguodala that year, and I'll be 100% serious, it should never get a vote again. That was so asinine, it was ridiculous, but that set the tone. Remember now, 1969 was the first year we had finals MVP. He won. We haven't seen it since, and it's almost like it's a law now. You can't give it to somebody on the losing side. If you're not going to give it to LeBron when he averaged, what was it, 36-13-9 in those wins or whatever it was? You can't give it to Steph Curry, I wouldn't think, but I don't know. I wouldn't mind seeing it because to me, he's clearly the best
5: player in the series. So for, as we kind of build on that then, one of the things that, that I've kind of harped on each of the last few games, I have no idea, and I get liability is baked into some of these, but if you're telling me true odds for finals MVP – the most likely Celtic to win this award, should they win this series, is Jalen Brown, not Jason Tatum. Correct?
7: It should be. It should be. What is the best number JVT right now that I could get if I were to search on right. Jalen Brown?
5: I have seen in the range of about eight to one. I know the odds that we just showed right now at BetMGM have him at seven to one. But like, if you're you're telling me the odds we have right now, uh, minus one forty five on Steph Curry over at BetMGM, Jason Tatum plus one eighty five, Jalen Brown at seven to one, even at seven to one. That gap between Tatum and Brown, that is not that big. I, that's Again, liability is baked into this, Tom, but it, like that's a really good number on a guy who has arguably been the most consistent player for the – not arguably, has been the most consistent player for the Boston Celtics.
7: Oh, listen, at MGM I think you said, didn't limit me. I'd be on that already. I'm going to look for <laughs> another book that has a similar 7-1, to 8-1, to one, whatever it might be. That's a heck of a number. I mean, bottom line is you're 100% right. Now, again, you know this. Humans vote for this award. And in theory, if they win two more games, Jason Tatum likely plays very well. I do believe there's a lot of truth to the idea Tatum's due for a big bounce-back game. But where we stand today, 7 or 8-1, to yeah, that's more than actionable because he's been their best player, and Boston's still at worst. To me, is 50-50, at worst to win this series. So bottom line is that's where the value lies. You can't take Tatum. I mean, I know a lot of knuckleheads will do that. Because he's Jason Tatum, he's the biggest name, and he's he's got the best game, quite frankly. But the best player doesn't always play the best in the finals, and this is a clear example of that.
5: Well, I think some of the knuckleheads will go like, hey, you know, Jordan Poole, if he's got some pretty big games down the stretch, will probably get a lot of 401. That's a pretty good shot worth taking. Uh, not the case. All right, <laughs> so let's. Uh, I was talking uh, adjustments before we had you on, and some, uh, one of the adjustments yeah. we saw Steve Kerr make was, you know what, screw it. He's been my guy for a while, but we can't do this anymore. Draymond, you're getting bit benched for five minutes in the fourth quarter. We're rolling with Looney, and we're going to outscore the Celtics by seven. We're going to take a lead in those minutes, and then we're going to go offense-defense. What do you think Draymond's, uh, Draymond's role is now as we move forward here, and we've seen Kerr finally start to budge a little bit in terms of cutting down the minutes for Draymond Green, especially in big situations?
7: I'm going to guess that he's going to trust Draymond Green until he thinks he can't trust him anymore. And by that, I mean... If it's fourth quarter and he's still struggling and looking like the Draymond Green we've seen for the most part when you look at this series, then I think he'll look to get somebody else involved, no question. I don't think he'll be shy at this point. He doesn't want to do that. Draymond's very opinionated. The last thing he wants is for Draymond to go on his podcast five minutes later and talk about his benching, and that'd be big news. He'd rather avoid that, and I think there's a lot of trust between the two, and for obvious reasons. I think, if anything, he gives them extra leeway. I'd be surprised if the numbers are cut drastically. I'm talking about the minutes until the fourth. If he's struggling, then I think he'll he'll put him on the bench for another five minute six minute stretch. And dare I say, if he struggled worse than he's been, he might not even see the crunch time numbers. And boy, that would be interesting if he didn't get minutes in the final couple of of series. But at the same time, I think it is fair to expect him to bounce back a little bit, J Right? I mean, he has been so bad. Think about it. We all know he's going to the Hall of Fame. I mean considering who they have put in, mm-hmm. Draymond Green's getting into the conversation, and he's getting in at the end of the day. And so, from that perspective, can you remember a Hall of Famer who's still supposedly in his physical prime playing this ridiculously bad? I can't.
5: Uh, Micah Adams put out the tweet, I think it was after Game 3, that he had a historically bad game. Uh, nobody with 34 minutes in an NBA Finals game had at, like put up more there less than 5 points, 5 rebounds, and 5 assists in the contest. It was incredible, but... Uh, yeah, it's been pretty bad for Draymond, so we'll see. Uh, he is pretty good, though, so we'll see. He's probably going to bounce back. Tom, we got 30 seconds left, so I'll let you go. Appreciate it, man. Anytime, JVT. You got it. One Tom Byrne, uh, the number one, up on Twitter is where you want to follow him, B-Y-R-N-E. All right, we'll come back. Second hour. Uh, we'll dive a little bit deeper into those finals MVP numbers because that's a shocking number to look at with Jalen Brown at 7-1. to uh, And we'll dive into more player props, and we'll talk about the Game 5 matchup from a totals perspective. It's hardwood hitting